All right, welcome to Now This Is Podcasting. I'm Connor, and I'm here as always with Calvin. Hey. And we have McKinnon on as a guest again. What's up? And uh, we're welcoming uh, Katya back again. Thanks for joining us. Yes, thank you. Hello. And we're talking about Requiem for a Dream today. This is uh, being added to our Darren Aronofsky suite. Uh, Like we said, we've done The Fountain, Black Swan, Mother, and then we recently uh, talked about Noah. And I kind of wanted to go back to Requiem for a Dream because it's one of his earlier movies. I think it was like Pi was done before this. Yeah. But this is, I think, is the one that got him a lot of notoriety. This is talked about as kind of, I think it's beyond a cult classic now. A lot of people know what this movie is. Yeah, I think it's cult classic just because it's budget, uh, or I mean, uh, it's box office wasn't very big. But I feel like this is, it, it's one of those seminal moments in modern um editing techniques it's one of those movies that's uh, as a from a formalism perspective is uh is is almost groundbreaking i mean there's just there are other movies that have done it before but nobody did it like this right so uh like you said you mentioned the box office uh this made seven yeah 7.4 million it had a budget of 4.5 so i mean it, it at least made its money back uh it was also written by darren aronofsky and it's based off a book by uh, herbert selby and he also he also participated in like uh, writing the screenplay for it as well with Darren, Arno- Darren Aronofsky. So I think that's mm. cool when you can get like the original creator to be a part of it as well. So this basically follows the story of four people and kind of how they're dealing with addiction. Um, so McKinnon, what's your first thought on this film? Yeah, so uh, a couple of days ago, I was watching um, The Disaster Artist with James Franco. Have you guys seen that movie? Yeah. Yeah, really great movie about the uh, filming of The Room one of like the most iconic cult classic films of all cult classics, I think. Like the best worst movie. Yeah. yeah. I think that The Disaster Artist is really charming. I really enjoy watching that movie. So I was watching it. It's on Netflix. And uh, I finished watching that movie and turned on Requiem for a Dream. And I finished the movie and the credits came on and I was like, wow, I really want to watch Disaster Artist again. <laughs> that was my first impression. I did not enjoy this movie. <laughs> I don't think the point is to enjoy it. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. That, that, that was my takeaway. This is definitely not a movie I would watch again. I, ever, that's I actually, think. So we, uh, I was like, okay, so this movie is really hard to handle, Katya. Uh, do you, why don't we watch this trailer to see how you, how you feel uh, tonight? And like the, the first words in the trailer are like the movie you said you'd never watch again. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was telling Connor, like my, my work week has been pretty packed, just like long days. And I, I don't want to like, watch Requiem for a Dream when I get off work. And Connor's like, yeah, that's that's not a movie you put on to relax. So, <laughs> No, no, it, you had a long day. You don't want to go watch heroin addicts lose their arms. No, <laughs> not, not, not at <laughs> all. It's a brutal movie to watch. It's definitely not something that you, yeah, you, you, you pop it on and you sit back on the couch and have a good time. No, definitely. That's not your popcorn movie. Yeah. Uh, Katya, what did you think of this one? I don't know if I'd watched it again, but um, <laughs> I did enjoy it. I was I was drawn in the whole time. I didn't really feel that like uncomfortable. Like I hit my limit until you know, kind of in the last 15, 20 minutes of the movie, like part three. Then it started to get you know a little overwhelming. Um, but yeah, I think it's definitely something you watch more to think. Um, if you if you want to relax, I feel it's not the best movie. <laughs> no. You know, if you're in a good mood, it's not the best movie. But um, I feel like it could definitely be something that teenagers like would really grab onto and be like, "This is my movie." You know. I thought it was. It's like this is a great 
movie that like the dare campaign should use to dissuade yeah. people from drug use i was like it's like almost perfect propaganda for that <laughs> yeah whereas i feel i've heard so many stories of of dare where people were like yeah those people were so uncool that i was like i should do drugs <laughs> <laughs> yeah. exactly right and this gives a very like i like that it's not happy it's very realistic yeah it felt like a pretty true representation of i mm-hmm. think how uh, a, like drug use and addiction can take can take a hold of someone i, mm-hmm. I agree with you with on that mm-hmm. yeah that was actually so my first impression of it when i first heard about it it was actually one of my friends at uh taco bell suggested we should uh watch it but it was also in the same breath as friday so i was kind of hoping i, I had mixed mixed ideas on it yet because i hadn't seen the fountain yet um and then when i found out they were the same director i was like oh, we have to watch a requiem for a dream it, right. he made the the greatest movie i've ever seen um and yeah i feel like this is this is just like one of those those movies that it's not about the story it's not about theme or symbol but it's so so good at just getting inside of this experience of these people um what they're perception of time is their their hopes and desires and it does it in such an interesting and uh smart way without being pretentious i think there's a pretentious way to do this film and i don't think that's what it is i think there's a specific style he was going for a specific editing technique that is meant to be uh, uh uncomfortable and alienating but at the same time it also fades back into the fabric of the story that you don't really notice that some of these techniques are happening i think it's i think it's one of the greatest films uh in terms of uh editing technique out there yeah no i agree it's like integral to the story like Mm -hmm. you need the the way it's like the you've called it hip-hop editing like you need that Mm -hmm. you need that kind of freneticism to it to really drive home what's going on with these characters i think so I, I I agree with you. I I think it is a feat in terms of editing and how you can how you can get the story across in a in a more accurate, better way just through editing instead of like through performances or dialogue. Like just the editing tells the story on its own. Yeah, and I think the statistic is that most uh, Hollywood movies, the average number of cuts they have is seven hundred, and this film has over two thousand. Yeah, that's wild to me. Yeah. But this movie is packed with montages for no reason. There's so many montages. Exactly. Oh, well, yeah, we'll get into those for <sighs> sure. Um, this is the second time I had watched it. I had watched it years ago, and, and I think I felt the same as you know the rest of us. I didn't really want to watch it again. Uh, <laughs> I still, I think it is, I understand why it's considered a classic. I think it's it's a really well done movie. I think they, like I said, with the editing, they're, they're trying to do something. They're trying to like push the envelope in some way. They're trying to tell this story in an interesting way. But I also think the there isn't really a theme to this. There isn't really a point to this movie. It's not about, it's not really about drug addiction. It's not about the consequences of drug addiction. It's more just, this is just the story of people who go through this. Or how they cope. I think that's one thing that you could say is going on here, here is there's a lot of baggage that we, that isn't expressed. The only one that we really, uh, whose mind we really get into as far as the motivations for everything are Sarah about how she wants to be someone. She wants yeah. to be loved. And I think that's a great, the way they incorporate in there and how they parallel her experience with everybody else's says, this is, this is the same thing. This is a human experience. This is a human motivation. They're all feeling the same way. They just need something to feel okay to get through the next day. And 
that, that that's all this movie needs to be about and it just needs to be that moment and everything else is just like this is the day-to-day life you understand now why everyone's doing it and this is these this is how they experience that right so we've we've talked about the editing i want to talk about the just the opening to this movie i was t- totally into it it's where uh, harry and sarah are arguing he's going to go like hawk the tv or whatever and sarah goes into a room and that's when you get that first like transition into the split screen what did you guys think of that I think that's part of this movie trying to push its on, push the envelope in terms of its editing, and I was immediately uh, drawn in by it, and I was I was glad it kept kind of reappearing throughout the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it immediately let you know this is it, this is more than just one person, this is more than one thing happening, but also it it pulled you out of the like gut reaction of oh that guy's a drug addict, he's like stealing her TV, like what's going on? Because you got to see her reacting, you saw him. I don't. I thought it was very interesting at reminding you that there's a lot of perspectives and a lot of people involved. Um, yeah, because essentially it's it's a story for people. Mm-hmm. So it's not, I'm glad it, the, the jumping off point of this movie was to let you know, like this is going to be, we're going to be following a couple people. There isn't a single uh, protagonist to this. So yeah, I agree with you on that. I think it was, again, it's just a good way in the, the style of this movie to let you know kind of what you're getting into right at the beginning. I thought it was an interesting technique. It made me wonder what if the whole movie was like that? Like the entire movie was just split in half and you saw like both of these lives at the same time the right. whole way through. I thought mm-hmm. that would have probably been too disorienting, but maybe it wouldn't have been. I feel like, yeah, that uh, exactly. That could have been really, really disorienting. But mm-hmm. I would have loved to have seen that type of movie. Yeah. I don't think it ever would get made with that kind of budget. But uh, the split screen um, projection was one thing we played uh, a lot with in school. And some of my teachers really, really loved it because, yeah, it's... It is another layer of um, association of ideas because that's what editing is, is the association of ideas. Mm -hmm. So the fact here that um, the editing works not only in association of ideas, but also the perspective of each character is fascinating. And the fact that we start with that, it's it says everything you need to know about how you're going to feel about this movie. The the right and wrongs aren't necessarily the point. Mm -hmm. um, And it's not one person's perspective. Yeah. Fast. So, so well done. Yeah. I would, I wonder if they could have even gone further and had four screens at the same time, Mm. not make it an hour and 40 minutes, just make it like a, like a 40 minute movie, just have all these lives going on at the same time. Yeah. That would have been fascinating. Well, then it, it changes from the movie you never want to watch again to the movie you need to watch a couple times that we can focus on each screen. That's an interesting idea, but it doesn't play well to an audience. I don't, maybe not, but like, I'm going to complain a lot about this movie's montages but imagine having all these montages playing at the same time with each other right on yeah. four different screens i think that that would look really neat that would have been a would have been a crazy way to go with the movie yeah that would have been so cool it actually probably would have been more a more difficult watch than primer um, which is yeah. considered one of them <laughs> that movie is just so tough to track yeah exactly and imagine imagine primer being split screen yeah <laughs> yeah it would be like an, uh, actually be like, that would be amazing because then you could track each timeline yeah that actually be might like, be, uh, make it easier like rick and morty <laughs> that episode of rick and morty but that uh that ends up becoming 16 and then 32 <laughs> yeah. and then you you get so many screens on that you can't even track them anymore uh yeah. but yeah primer would be that'd be a fascinating way to, to view primer Okay, so we've mentioned the montages already. Let's get into it and uh, share our thoughts on them. I want to know, McKinnon, tell me why you don't like them or why they don't work for you. So I don't think the montages in this movie are inherently bad. And what what I mean by montages are the little sequences where they're they're taking drugs and like they're shooting the heroin or whatever, or when the mom's popping the pills. 
I don't think that those are inherently bad. I was expecting there to be a lot fewer of them. So I started keeping track and there's something like eight or nine of these drug montages. Mm. And to me, that's not that's not a good movie technique to use if you're gonna put so many of them in. I thought it was I thought it was completely overused. I think it it kind of needs to be gratuitous because it's supposed to show like they're they, it is an addiction. Because that's it, the point. It takes up the. It takes up so much time. It takes up. It's the driving force in their life. So you need yeah. to have it appear often. Otherwise, it doesn't really make them. It doesn't really make the addiction seem like it's very important if sure. you only get a couple of these scenes. I could see that. I think maybe maybe my problem with this movie and why it didn't land for me is because I've I've never done drugs before. I don't know how any of that stuff works. Right. So maybe I could appreciate those montages and what they're trying to say more if I have experienced that before but maybe maybe this movie would mean something different to me if i had done that i do think too uh, the reason i like the montages and i think they work is because they're driving the narrative forward i have complained on this podcast about edgar wright and he does the (laughs) same editing techniques and it's literally just simon Pegg getting up and getting ready for his day and it shows him eating a waffle and And zoom in cut zoom cut zoom cut zoom and those those aren't really progressing the story in any way. They're not telling me anything about the character. They're not telling me, they're not informing the viewer on on what we're getting into. And I like the montages and how it depicts drug use in this because it's telling you about the characters. And it appears so many times that again, just just by having the volume of montages, it tells you a lot about the characters as well. I don't think the montages tell you anything about the characters. It just tells you what the movie's going to be about. Well, I think if you if you picture these characters as in the end being defined by this addiction and mm-hmm. like yeah, then that's what it is. Like I appreciate them because of the repetitiveness. Sure. Because it's like, yeah. Would you say that the characters in this movie are just like an archetype, like a drug addict archetype? I think that's what they are. They're not they're not incredibly deep characters. I don't know if they're an archetype. I think it's just the addiction becomes like that becomes their defining like characteristic both for themselves and like how they see the world and other people see them so maybe in some sense but also that is what they are I think they they try to flesh them out a little bit by like having the girls dreams a little bit and then Ty kind of wants to be this person in charge and it shows a little bit of his backstory so it kind of throws those things in but the overwhelming thing and the overwhelming thing for the whole movie is just this is this is going to be what it is it's not going to get better so i I didn't have a problem with them not having a ton of depth in the movie. Um, I saw it more as we met all these people when they were already addicted to drugs. They tell you that they have dreams. They tell you that they have a backstory, but we see them in the addiction. And the, the person with the most depth seems to be Sarah, who we see from the beginning. So we get to see her, her motivation at least to keep taking her pills. Yeah, definitely. I don't think it's a problem necessarily that the characters don't have that much depth. I just meant, in, in my mind, their char- the characters in this movie are pretty much just boiled down to it. An archetype is... That's that's kind of what I meant, I guess. I think, well, and speaking from kind of experience, not personally, but knowing people who are addicted or become alcoholics, maybe at a very young age, they fell into that, maybe for no reason. Mm-hmm. Maybe because they had some psychological issues or mental health issues or familial issues or something happened but a lot of times they fall into it and then you meet them years later maybe when they're trying to get clean or when they're not clean and they they aren't anything Mm -hmm. they aren't your friend anymore they're not really a person anymore so it's interesting to see that the realistic portrayal of it because that yeah 
maybe they are an archetype, but that's just, that's all they are now. Sure. You know? Yeah. And it's mentions of like what they want to be, their aspirations. They want, they want to be on easy street, uh, you know, um, Ty and his mom, like those memories, like I was a good kid and I wanted to be something. Um, and Marion wants to, uh, uh, design things and uh, Sarah wants to be on TV and I think really if you look at the title of this movie Requiem for a Dream and Requiem is designed uh, is defined as an, an act or token of remembrance or um, a musical composition setting parts of the Requiem Mass uh, like for the Roman Catholic Church I think that's what this movie th then is is like it's thinking about what we were, what we could have been, but through this lens of drugs, through this lens of addiction, that we can't overcome any of these things. Get back to what we were. So those are they're just they're little they're little like pinpoints on their timeline of like I could have been something or I had desires at one point. But they're so deeply clouded now that all we have is this. Um, I like to think of this movie as a as a slice of mind, and we're in the the drug addled slice of their mind, and they're the, that part of their life right now, and that's all we can see from it. That's why I love the um, the the montages of them uh, uh, of the drugs and like the the bubbling pipes and the the my, you know the uh, amoebas under the microscope is because well I don't want to see I don't I don't need to see them smoking every time, and that's what I mean by like in Noah we we say that uh, uh, Aronofsky is it really ha ham handed in subject matter and showing like gratuitousness some things happen like that in mother but here it's all really implied and it's just all of the 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 uncomfortable stuff comes from the technique right and that's what um what makes it so so groundbreaking is we get inside of their head and their experience without ever even seeing them yeah no there's definitely a lot of technique in this movie it's just a shame that it's mostly montages <laughs> but i got so uncomfortable during those sometimes with the mm -hmm. constant sounds and i was just like this is it's too much for me. That's the part that makes me feel. Yeah. That's what made me feel. Not like seeing them, you know, look bad. Or, it does feel yeah. like a little bit of sensory overload. Yeah. In sensory those overload, in those sections, yeah. and it it definitely it's it's definitely supposed to make you feel uncomfortable. I think yeah, that, that's the yeah, point yeah. is sensory overload. Yeah. Also, it, and that's one thing I'll never knock Aronofsky for. It, the guy always gets across the vision that he had. I mean, he he sets out to he set out to make an uncomfortable film that deals with an uncomfortable subject. And he nailed it. Whether or not you like the movie or appreciate it, it's um, it's technically exactly what he wanted. Yeah. And so I, I can always appreciate a director uh, being able to make the film they want to make. And I don't think it's a problem that the you may say the characters are kind of one note or they lack depth, because I agree with Calvin. We're really just looking at this one aspect of their life. It, we don't need to know their whole background to. We're not supposed to feel sorry for them, and you know. Uh, well, I think we're supposed to feel sorry for them. I mean, but we're supposed to feel sorry for them and kind of the evolution that they're going through. But we're not supposed to feel like, oh, like they they lost out on these ambitions or they weren't able to like be fully realized. I mean, we're because we're not covering their backstory so deeply and we don't know them fully as characters. It, it's not like we're we're pulling for them, you know, it's like, yeah. oh, like, oh, man, you could have been a, a great designer or, you know, you could have been a great business <laughs> owner. It's that's because that's not really the point. The point is supposed to be like, this is what's going on in their life now. And just getting like little uh just like little notes of who they were and kind of ambitions they have is all you really need. So, yeah. Uh, so I don't think there needs to be a lot of depth in these characters because it's really about the story they're currently in. 
Right. No, not, I, I not don't... Not the evolution of their whole life. I don't think that there needs to be a bunch of depth to these characters either. I just really wanted to make the archetype observation and say drug addict archetype. I was I think, just excited to say that. Yeah, I I, I think that's a great... I, yeah, if you've, you've clearly learned something here, McKinnon. I think so. Picking up on it. And I think that's exactly it. Like, if you would say that these characters lack depth, then you would be... That would be if you were expecting this to be a character study. But this is this is a study of four different pers- of four different experiences of the same affliction. Right. That's what's going on here is it's what's what uh what all minds feel under and and four different expressions of mind under the influence of drugs. Right. And that's it's it's so it's it's very it's almost scientific in a way. It's also very personal and intimate. I love how this movie b- bounces back and forth between this third person perspective on these people, and in, in the same shot gets inside of their head and behind their eyes, and we see everything through their perspective. You That's what like this movie is doing so well. You don't think that you would classify this as a character study? I don't. I wouldn't call it a character study. Really? No, because yeah, it's. I think I think character studies are best served for one character where we follow through a whole narrative. And I don't think that any of these characters are different enough um, that their stories are stand apart from each other. I mean, think of the ending where everyone is curled up in the fetal position in uh, one of their own beds, completely isolated. Right. It's it's creating a, a connection between all of these, and not sep- there's there's separation of space, but not connection, but uh, connection and experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm glad McKinnon has now coined the. Drug addict archetype and the shark type. Yeah, <laughs> the shark. Congratulations. I love that. Yeah. Uh, so let's move on to uh, the comparison between the pills and heroin. These are like amphetamine pills. One thing I was really kind of taken aback by is when Harry learns that Sarah is is on these amphetamines, and he's so concerned. He's like, "Those are going to kill you." He's like, "You got to get off that stuff." And he completely ignores that he's doing the same thing. It's it's a really interesting kind of I guess psychology that goes on in some addicts where you can recognize that it's bad or no good for other people, especially people you care about, mm. but then also kind of ignore the affliction and the way it affects you. So I actually really liked that part. It seemed really genuine to me to to have an understanding that I don't want this for my mother, but then you're going to go and, and shoot up, you know, as soon as you leave. Mm. So I wonder what do you guys think of that comparison between the two? I thought that Harry, yeah, recognizing it was terrible for him or for his mother, but not caring. You know, it, it wasn't a pivotal moment where he decided, oh, I'm not going to do drugs anymore. I'm not going to do this. I see what's happening to my mom. Because that's what, like, some people probably would have wanted to see. Like, that would have taken the tension out. That's when he starts becoming, you know, on his journey to stop, to stop. Like that's a, not like, what it's about. Yeah, it's not a story about sobriety. No. Which it, I think you could have a much more uplifting movie directed by someone else. Yeah. Um, where, Starring Mark Wahlberg. Right. Becoming... <laughs> <laughs> turning away from being the life of debauchery and becoming a priest. Yeah. I, uh, Have you seen trailers for that movie coming out? I'm not sure what you're talking about. Father something. It's, yeah, Father Stew. Oh, um, I haven't heard of this one. It is coming out April 12th is what it looks like, uh, or maybe April 13th. But yeah, it's about a, a boxer um, who sees a, a a Catholic woman that he really wants to bed down. And so he becomes a priest because, well, he joins the Catholic church because um, he wants to get with her and then becomes a priest after a life altering accident. Yeah. And blah, blah, blah. You know, there's redemption and stuff. And that's not what the point of Requiem for a dream. And I really like that. For that, <laughs> for that, no, for yeah, that I agree. For that case. Yeah. 
there's they're not going to get saved by anything. I love how there's not even a reflection that uh, on himself. No, nope. it's not even a moment where he where he catches himself and is like, the only thing that you can really say is like, well, how how would you know, Harry? Are you a doctor? And he's like, I just I just know. Right. But the thing is, is he is so deep in uh, the drug trade at that point, um, and making money and getting to his goals that he's he can't he can't not use that anymore. Like he can't he literally cannot stop for a moment and reflect on his actions and their consequences because this is the only good thing he has going in his life right now besides Marion and Ty. Which is they both, they both are getting way more benefits, Sarah and Harry, than, you know, negative things at this point. Right. Yeah, they're both right there. Yeah, exactly. I really like too, it showing up as medication Mm -hmm. instead of heroin because I think you have a really hard time getting an audience to believe that Sarah is going to become a heroin addict to lose weight so she could be on TV. And I like how it shows like addiction can come from so many different sources and it's not it's not uh, isolated to to drug use mm-hmm. uh, in like a uh, like illegal drug use. Well, it was even linked up to her like eating habits. Like she kept having these like dreams about the food, and she was addicted to the food. So I yeah. liked that comparison a lot too. I I have taken a couple nutrition classes because I'm in this like healthcare major, and we cover like anorexia and eating disorders a mm-hmm. lot, and like kind of that obsession with thinness and everything. So and that in and of itself becomes an addiction as well. So even before she uh, started taking the amphetamines you see that she has this kind of uh, addictive personality already. She mm-hmm. wants to do things to uh, change her body image and body composition. So I, I like that kind of that seed was planted early on that this is the kind of personality she has. And then that build up to, a, you know, eventually her breakdown and ending up in a, a like a men- mental institution, I thought was totally earned. But I really like the introduction of the pills and showing that addiction comes from many different areas. and Trusted areas too sometimes. Mm-hmm. I also love the depiction of the doctor. And how he just he just is nonchalant. I don't even think we ever see his eyes. Right. No, he never looks at her. And I think there's a big, there was a, early on when medications and like, especially like antibiotics became more popular, there was a big push to just, just, just give drugs, just push out medication. That's how the healthcare system worked for a while. And so the, the idea of the doctor not really doing his due diligence, checking up on Sarah, you know, seeing the changes that's going on. Like when she comes back, she's clearly... Uh, I mean, she's tweaking, she's grinding her teeth and everything, and he just prescribes more amphetamines. And so I think it's also, it's a good commentary on the healthcare system where it was, it was really focused for a while on just, just pushing medication to treat symptoms rather than dealing with the core issue, which is addiction. So I I also really like that too. It's, it's really poignant and it's, it's not really the point of the movie, but I'm glad that it's, uh, it's referenced. Yeah, I think it definitely says something because they also have the, you know, they have the hospital and they have the the jail at the end and they have like the sex trade. They have all of these bigger, you know, institutions right. that they mention. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then you get like the electroshock therapy. Mm-hmm. You get the doctor, like you said, in the prison who essentially is like, can you see me? Are you fine? And that's yeah. the extent of his exam. So it certainly doesn't paint the healthcare system and it's, it's treatment of uh, those who are addicted very well. I mean, also the fact that the the first doctor just um, dismisses Harry and they get sent to prison. Right, right. Like, clearly he's about to lose that arm. Oh, I love to. He like, because, uh, you know, he can tell he's an addict and everything. And he grabs those vials off the off the desk yeah. and puts yeah. them in his pocket and walks away, you know, with a, a glare in his eye. But that's his immediate reaction. Not, I need to help this person now. Right, is right. I need to protect this place from him. And I think that's certainly, I mean, not just in healthcare. That's a perspective that people have on... Uh, you, drug addicts in general i think there's a lot of people who look at oh, like a degenerate or uh, uh, the scourge of society and these people aren't they're not doing anything to help anyone else out there just need their next fix and i think the story at least does a good job of showing like these are people in like real turmoil and torment 
mm-hmm. and they're probably the people in society that need the most help, and they're the ones who are either shunned or turned away uh, the quickest. Yeah, I think it's really interesting too. Like clearly that arm is is infected, but his first thought is like, oh, he's gonna try and steal something. Like, mm-hmm. why why did he turn turn him away? Like, why why would that guy? Why would Harry have gone to a hospital if he weren't in excruciating pain? Mm-hmm. And that's not even a thought that comes up. And I wondered if that was, um, you know, why? Like, why include that in the narrative that he gets completely dismissed from that by that doctor? Is it uh, a thematic thing or is it just for the purpose of the narrative to get them in, in prison? I think it serves as both because you do. You need to progress the story in that direction because then you get that. Uh, you know, maybe the last like 20 minutes is it's really intercutting all four of their stories and having them in like the lowest point. So you need to have them pushed into the prison so that way you get that perspective. But I also think it, it's uh, like I mentioned, it's just telling of how people react and treat, you know, people in need who are who are drug users, people going through withdrawals, mm-hmm. these people who need help. There is a stigma surrounding these mm-hmm. kinds of people. And so they're they're dismissed and, and not treated for. So I think it serves in both ways. It, it tells a story about kind of how society fuse these people and then it also pushes the narrative forward Mm -hmm. so let's move on to um what is this movie trying to say what is what is the story uh you know why make a movie like this i don't think there's any reason to make a movie like this i think it's hollow and it's it's obviously trying to tell you to do drugs yes to to do drugs that's that's the whole point of the movie isn't it (laughs) i'm sure that when they sat down to write the script they're like let's get drug use out there yeah Yeah, exactly no they really failed because they didn't even show them once doing drugs right (laughs) no i just i didn't i oh actually i'm sorry he does poke that clearly infected vein oh boy oh they boil the can in their car no i just i didn't uh, i i understand that this movie is trying to say something i just don't think it landed for me personally i spent a lot of time after i watched this movie trying to think of the right word to describe it and to me, this movie just, it just felt hollow to me. I didn't feel connected to any of the characters. I think that's kind so. of the point. I think hollowness is is kind of the point. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. It's supposed to be alienating. Because right. that's kind of, that's the corporeal um, experience that drug users have. How right. they're constantly uh, dissociating between themselves when they're just that far down the down in the down the rabbit hole they're so stuck in needing this thing and not really understanding who they are and what they are in any moment like there's that that uh when they're um uh getting hot dogs at the beginning and the officer sits <laughs> right. down with them yeah, yeah and he like i mean a couple times it actually happens where they just have dreams uh uh marion has one where she's uh, at dinner too with uh, her therapist and she stabs his hand with the fork right um the fact that they're I think that sometimes they don't know that they have zoned out for um, a noticeable amount of time. Um, I think all of those things are are, are meant to um, show you how, like, even in their own bodies, they're, they can't relate to themselves. Right. That's what I feel like is so great about this movie is you can tell some a story about someone through their eyes and they don't get it. Yeah, I think, I think you're 100% right. And the hollowness that I feel about this movie was intentional in how they were trying to get across these emotional moments with these characters Mm. and that feeling of isolation. And I think they did a really good job doing that. I also thought that if that's the movie you're trying to go for, I don't know why anyone would want to watch a movie that makes you feel like that. (laughs) And if I'm the only one here who feels that way, then it's probably a fine movie because I'm only one guy. 
But for me personally, I just I couldn't I could not get into this. I w- I'm never going to watch it again. I'm never going to recommend it to anyone. Mm-hmm. I, I think that it isn't trying to say anything. I- at least it's not it's not themed to dissuade drug use. It's not it's certainly not themed to um, encourage drug encourage use. you. <laughs> um, but I think the the point is is it's I'll, it's more of a like a, like an exercise in empathy. Like, how do you how do you gain perspective on a, a subject that you don't know anything about, and to have it depicted so graphically really makes it hit home and feel real. So I think that it's not it's not trying to deliver a message; it's trying to get an audience to understand this is this is what drug use is, this is what addiction is, and being able to gain that perspective is, I think, what's important for the audience. Yeah, and not necessarily like getting across a message of either morality or or, or immoral or how we think of drug use that's not really the point here Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i think it's i think the biggest message i would take away from it is that these er, people go through this experience separately together i mean they have these mirroring experiences at the end where they're all stuck alone in these different places i think one of the saddest parts is when harry's in the hospital and the nurse says you know he's calling for marion and he's like she's she says he'll she'll come right and harry's like she won't come because harry didn't go to marion when mm-hmm. Marion needed him because they couldn't. They both needed to get their fix however they could get it. And so I think that's really interesting. And I'd like that we're not forced into it by knowing too much about the character or having one person. Because it's so easy for these movies to be so depressing and like tear jerking. Right. And like you really care for this person. But the whole point of this is that we should care for all of them. But, you know. But it's not, not melodramatic. Yeah, it's not melodramatic. No, no, that's... I would never describe any Aronofsky film as melodramatic. Yeah. And so, you know, it's interesting that, you know, a lot of everyone's saying that this is the movie you never want to watch again. It's just pure depressing and all of these things. So my relationship with that type of movie, with something that's just, it feels gross and slimy and disgusting. And it's an exploration of one of the lowest uh, rungs of the human social ladder. I... I don't connect more with those movies, but when I compare them to something like um, like Hayao uh, Miyazaki movies, you know, like Ponyo and uh, Spirited Away, uh, a lot of anime, or just like kitschy stuff in general, like um, uh, Hallmark movies. Like so many people just like want to watch those because I, I just want to feel good about myself. Right. I feel genuinely worse about myself when I watch too many of those because... I constantly am thinking, well, life doesn't work like that. Why doesn't my life work like that? Like I had to stop watching anime because there's just so many of those. They're just one note, one stories, one hero uh, journeys of these characters um, overcoming. Well, basically just being destined to be great. It's the same problem I have with Harry Potter. I can't watch all um, all of the movies together because I can like watch one at a time because the thing is, it's like Harry is like just destined to be great. He's going to be okay. Yeah, he's going to be yeah. okay. That's not how real life works. So like, and there are constant, how I internalize those things and like how my life is going. It's like, I'm not just going to be perfect or and everything. Like thing, life just doesn't work that way. I feel genuinely more depressed after watching uplifting movies like that than I do a movie like this where I can say, wow, someone's life is terrible. I wonder how I can help them. I'm, right. ki- I'm kind of glad my life is not like that. I can see then the missteps that they've made and form um, a path forward in my own life that avoids those pitfalls. Right. Mm-hmm. 
So I, th- I watch movies like this more more often and consistently than I would the 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 so-called feel-good ones. Would you say that you watch a movie like this and enjoy it more because there's less of a suspension of disbelief? Um, as opposed to like a required. Hallmark movie or something? Yeah, like the there is a higher level of suspension of disbelief that is required for those movies. Um like like Hallmark movies, like things that uh, are clearly not representing uh, human life. They're what they're replicating are human desires, mm-hmm. and that's the problem I really have. Is I I I can understand a feel good movie that uh, is a little bit more nuanced, plays to human life and on human desires. But when it's pure human desire, mm-hmm. that's the part that that really gets me. Is like with that. If you're focusing so much on your desire and how you want things to be, you're always going to be dissatisfied with your life. So I'd rather watch something soul-crushingly disp- uh, like depressing like this. <laughs> so you feel better. <laughs> so that I don't, I, I'm not constantly thinking about my uh, my desire for mm-hmm. like the way I want things and the things that are very unrealistic right. to actually yeah. come to my life. I would definitely agree. This movie is a lot more realistic than Harry Potter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that you brought up. It requires less suspension of disbelief. I think you could really look at this movie as uh, maybe a dramatized documentary. Really. Yeah. That's that's. Kind of uh, the lens I look at it through. Yeah, I could see that because it does. It like we said, we it feels authentic. It feels like it's a real. It's a real story, and it's not really trying to have some uplifting message at the end or some story of sobriety and like oh, all these characters turned it around at the end. It's just supposed to be like this is yeah, this is what their life is, and we're just following them through it. So I, I kind of like mm-hmm. the idea of looking at it as a, a dramatized documentary. Yeah, I think the most unrealistic part about this movie that I just suspend the most disbelief for was Jared Leto's accent. <laughs> I did not understand what he was going for. I yeah. thought it was terrible. There <laughs> I thought, were a few points. I thought Ellen Burstyn did well, but she's great in everything. I loved her in the Fountain. She was great. Yeah, I love Ellen Burstyn. Okay, I haven't seen her in anything else, but she's is she in anything else I would have seen her in? I don't think she's in Percy Jackson. No. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, she's in Darren Aronofsky's other film, The Fountain. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. So, Katya, you mentioned kind of the tragic end for Harry. You know, he's curled up on the bed, and yeah. he knows he's he's not going to see his love anymore. I want to move into, let's kind of go through the tragic stories. Is there one that uh, you thought was more, maybe more earned or one that was more tragic than the other between the four characters? I think, it's hard. I think either Sarah's story or Ty's story were maybe the most tragic. Like for Sarah, I think her her life was depressing already, like from the beginning without the drugs. She was like seeing her dead husband. She was already already going to die alone. She didn't really have anything to live for. She didn't really, she was starting to feel very existential. Like, why should I do anything anymore? No, I totally agree with you. you I know? think her story for me was the most tragic yeah. one. Like just, just even the idea of her getting like the good seat mm-hmm. outside the apartment was like yeah. such a big deal for her. And, and yeah, and her breakdown talking about, she was, you know, she doesn't have her husband and her son isn't having any kids and mm-hmm. she lacks fulfillment. And just the idea of her like losing weight to potentially be on TV was a, a huge deal for her and like this pivotal change in like her emotion and in her life. Mm-hmm. And then to see it turn into uh, just evolve into the point of her, her completely like having a breakdown, I thought was was really tragic. And then her friends at the end when they see her and her in the hospital and they they're embrace outside and they're crying, you know, they see mm-hmm. this... this uh, the extreme effect that these these pills had on her and mm-hmm. fundamentally changed her as a person. Well, those, yeah, and that, you know, people would rather see her as a vegetable electrified than actually try to spend the time to care and, like, 
fix her. And I feel like that's for most people. They would rather see them dead or in jail or out of the way. We don't want to see these things happen. We don't want to watch this movie because we don't want to see it because there's not a lot we can do. And if they're if we do do anything for any of these people, it would have to be everything. Right. Everything. Like the lack of effort that the doctor goes through to, he's like, our treatments aren't working, so I'm just yeah. going to get you to sign. But and you do it, think he's nice at the beginning. You think he's trying, but then yeah. you, don't, you see it in practice and it doesn't seem yeah. like they're trying. It's just that how she is clearly just scribbling her name down. Mm-hmm. She's not coherent. She can't consent to this. And yeah. the treatment is just like, let's just do shock therapy because it's just easier. And mm-hmm. instead of taking the time to like give real treatment, I thought... I think all the pieces of her story really culminate to being the most tragic one. I think because she's the character you get the most background on. You see that transition from the beginning to the end, whereas Mm -hmm. the other characters, you kind of start in the middle of it. Yeah. Although I think Ty could be sad. He's the one, um, he's the one I'd most want to be, but also the one that like has the least, I feel like when it shows you like the racism and him him getting going into jail and then he's getting, he's basically going He's going to get clean in jail. You can expect he's the only one that's going to get past the drugs, but he's going to have all these other things to to deal with and battle with, and he already did have those things. So he's the one that was kind of like, yeah, I'm I'm on top. I've kind of done what I, I thought I was going to do. I'm the only one. For the most part, he was the one nobody thought was a junkie. I, I like think. that he, he's somehow the most likable character yeah, in this, for sure. very much so. I... I thought he kind of became a forgotten character, especially in that culmination, kind of in the last 10, 15 minutes, where you're seeing kind of the downfall of all these characters. Uh, Harry's, you know, going to lose his arm. Um, Sarah's ends up in a mental institution. Uh, Marion has turned to uh, needing to essentially use her body to uh, get the, the heroin that she needs to, to get her fixed, uh, to get her fix. And Tyrone just kind of ends up stirring what looks like marshmallow fluff. In the factory, I thought. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then like his his big tragic culmination is kind of that he, he pukes and that's it. So I, I thought for a story that seemed to track all four characters really well, I thought his story at the end was like the least climactic. Mm-hmm. And the culmination and build up to that is so great. And I love like the last 10 minutes of this. I just thought you needed to pump up kind of what was going on with him. I, I think maybe you need, like you mentioned, kind of the racism he's dealing with. I think if you add more of that in, uh, like him experiencing that in prison, then I, it pumps up that story more and it makes it uh, kind of equal out with the other stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do agree. I mean, they're all tragic. But <laughs> what, uh, what is his name? Ty? Mm-hmm. The guy from Scary Movie? <laughs> Marlon Wayans. Marlon Wayans, yeah. Okay, the guy from Scary Movie. Okay. Uh, yeah. He's a Wayans brother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not the same thing. I, uh, he is from that movie. No, you're right. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I recognize him from. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I thought his, his story, I, 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 I hated it. I thought that he didn't get enough scenes, so his like emotional climax at the end of the movie was completely undeserved, I thought. He I wish the, that they spent more time with him. Yeah, and he was the only one that we used flashbacks for, which uh, we've mentioned before is one of my least favorite techniques for um, expanding on the um, the history of a character or a story. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lazy way of doing... Um, uh, of character development because like we were saying we think that Sarah is probably the most well-developed character the one with uh, we understand the motivations we understand like how all of these intimate things really work inside of her mind because of her little explanation at the her monologue at the table to Harry that one moment is so much more powerful than all of the other uh, flashbacks when he was a kid with his mother okay. and, I, and I think that's part of why like those to me, don't land as well. I agree with you. I don't know um, if that if those work better or worse for other people, but yeah, there's just it doesn't feel 
I feel like you were supposed to uh, think, oh, he was a kid at one point, mm-hmm. and that's all it's supposed to take away. But it's just, it doesn't fit with the pace of all of this, all of this, uh, the cacophony of sound and light and editing that g- goes into this movie. So a tender moment like that, it needs to be, it can't be an editing thing like it was. It needs to be really, really slow and a close up like it was on Sarah. Yeah, totally. Would you say that the one flashback is canceled out by the 18 montages and leads you with a good movie? <laughs> you cannot get off that. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I agree. Like it, it doesn't really fit. That, yeah. that's it's not the montages that don't fit but the the flashback so what if each character had one flashback would that make it better i think it wouldn't it i would think bring more could, symmetry yeah i honestly wish that you could uh like let's take like it, your problem with all of the drug uh montages those quick ones and throw in like memories of theirs like each uh, like, time there's a drug montage, it's it's followed by no memory. Like within those montages, throw single frames mm-hmm. of like memories of theirs as kids or like things okay. that they wanted to be, dreams and ideas. So that they're just swirling around constantly. We don't know what they mean, but when you go back and slow those scenes down um, or those sequences down, you would see an image of like Marion like owning her own storefront. Yeah, that I, that type of idea embedded into the. Um, the the drug process i think would i think is really interesting because you're not going to see them all there's actually uh if you see uh persona um by ingmar bergman there's a really famous montage he has the beginning of that film and that shows uh there's a single frame with an erect penis and a lot of people miss it because it is a single frame so i think that you would if you show it enough times these frames would show up and enter your consciousness as far as the experience for requiem of a dream but they're not overt in the same way Gotcha. I'm just thinking about Fight Club because they also end with like a single frame of a penis on the mm-hmm. in the movie. So Do they? yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because isn't he? He's cutting him into the. He jokes about that because Brad Pitt's character into the film when he's at the theater. Yeah, he works at a theater and he'll like put a penis into like the film. Like he'll oh, he'll yeah. cut por- oh, yeah. he cuts pornography into it. Yeah, he's yeah. like, and everyone in the in the audience just saw a penis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've kind of talked about the heartbreaking stories. Do any of these characters have a good ending? Uh, do we think that they end up with something better? If we had to kind of interpret what's gone on in their lives so far, like what do we think their end is? Well, none of them end in a better spot than where they started. Well, Sarah doesn't know what's going on anymore, though. So, yeah. So, do do we think that she thinks that she's in a better spot than when she started? Because I think everyone on the outside would agree that she's not in a better spot than at the beginning of the movie. You'd think so, but she maybe she doesn't know anymore. So you think that she believes that she is in a healthier, better spot than when she was in her house? At yeah, the I think she just. I think she's no longer. It no longer matters. Yeah. To her. Okay. I, that's what I think. She doesn't end in a better spot than where she started, but she ends in a better spot than her lowest point. Cause, yeah. Because now she she has that vision that she's on stage and she has Harry on on stage with him uh, on stage with her. And they're talking about like, oh, he's getting married and they're going to have a kid and everything. So she at least ends, even though she's not really cognizant and she can't function the way she did before, she at least ends on a note that like it's higher than where she was. You don't think that her in the hospital as pretty much a vegetable is her lowest point? I think it's depressing, but I just think for her personally, like... Psychologically, it's not her lowest point because she was delusional before then. Mm -hmm. And she was really, really sad and lonely too. Mm -hmm. I mean... She was very sad. Yeah. I think the idea that she gets to spend what I assume is the rest of her life imagining this amazing moment where she's on stage with the, you know, uh, on the show that she loves with the people she loves. Yeah. I I like that idea. I I, I mean, it's certainly 
I think you're right. That's pretty yeah. twisted, but I think it's, you're right. It's, yeah. certainly, it's certainly tragic how she ends up at that point, but at least she gets to spend the rest of her life in a happy moment. I yeah, think she's that's, in a fantasy her, like the rest of her life. Yeah. yeah. I think the one thing that we haven't touched on too is like her addiction to television as well. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. And I think that's, that's really the problem I have with, with her living that moment uh, as a dream is that's why I find... Uh, feel good TV depressing you're constantly you constantly have to live in that moment because you can't live in life right and that's the that's the addiction of uh, of television and so I think she's actually I think she's the same I don't think she's any different she's just not cognizant of it anymore mm -hmm. like either way she was still coping the exact same way with her loneliness and her depression she was eating yeah. chocolates and watching TV now the TV's just in her head because she's just so messed up I don't think she's any better and I don't think she's any worse. No, that's a that's a really good way to put it. She kind of ends and st starts and ends in the same place. Mm -hmm. I got really heavy televangelist vibes. Oh yeah. From oh, that. from Tappy Tibbins. Yeah. Oh. My grandma watched. She was a big, big into televangelism. Like she watched TV on the same channel all day. And so that it, it kind of brought me back to that. I had a little little flashback of my own because that's just what she did. She sat in her recliner and watched TV all day. Mm-hmm. And that's like making it right like that for some people that's like yeah i've made it mm -hmm. i can just relax and watch tv yeah she had like a part-time job at the courthouse or, yeah. or, or at the capitol and then she came home and watched tv that's mm -hmm. that was her life that's what she did uh and i i you know obviously not the amphetamines but i saw that comparison between sarah, <laughs> and, <laughs> between sarah and my own grandmother uh and i also think Katio, you brought up about Ty. At least it seems like he's going to get clean from this. I mean, he's still going to have he's still going to have other issues, mm -hmm. you know, because it's it's clear like the guards were being the guards were racist, and mm -hmm. so he's definitely going to have a lot to deal with. But in terms of like, I think who has the potential for a better turnaround? I think Ty is right up there too. I mean, mm -hmm. he didn't lose an arm, and he hasn't had to like sell his body, and you really get this sense that uh, Marion's she's degraded herself to a point where like she can't even she can't even be alone with herself anymore no which mm -hmm. is which is terrible to go through yeah she's i was gonna say the the character shows sorrow but ty's like the only one who really shows remorse like when he's holding the picture mm. right that to me is like he regrets what he's done whereas the other characters just show sorrow for what they're doing yeah that's well, kind of I why i took away yeah. i actually think that marion smiles at the end when she she does yeah she she uh has her little bag of drugs and she's like oh finally one more day she also doesn't take a shower afterwards which to me tells that tells me that she's like accepted this mm -hmm. new way of life now yeah her story yeah. i think is the most heartbreaking because mm -hmm. considering where she was uh an affluent family that was paying her rent um yeah is she if she i mean they were designers too like that was right. she wanted to be like her parents she wanted the uh on some level the movie suggests that she wanted their acceptance and love and just for whatever reason, there's a miscommunication between them all, and that's why she does the things that she does. So she goes, she's in the, the deepest now. She is, um, you know, being pimped out uh, for drugs. Um, and she's and, set. She can keep doing it. Yeah. So she doesn't have to keep looking for the, yeah, the now money she, anymore. Yeah, now she's got a, her connection. And I feel like, yeah, if anything is, is overt in this movie, it's just how degrading... Um, her relationship with her therapist is um, how degrading her relationship with uh, I don't remember his what his name, but he calls himself Little John because it made Marion. That's the part yeah. I remember yeah. the most. I think his story was the one I was most interested in. 
Yeah. I really liked her story. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, yeah, there's a whole lot of nuance there and it's, it's just, yeah, hers is the most brutal because not only, um, are you subjecting yourself to the drugs and the mind altering substances, but you're also, it's much harder, I think, physically for you to obtain drugs that yeah. way. I also really like the shot of her in the tub crunched, uh, like curled up and the mm. shot of like under the water. And then she like screams into the tub. Yeah. I thought that was, for me, that was like the best shot in the whole movie. I really like that shot. Black Swan vibes. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. That's that's what I thought too. I do think it's really neat to see, to, to watch this movie, which I think is full Aronofsky doing everything oh. that he wanted. Yeah. And then to see it still being reflected in the other films. Like we talked about uh, the uncomfortable editing and that shows up in Mother as well. I mean, that's... As well as the close-ups. Yeah. So I, I, I like to see it's toned down in his later work, but to still see like his style is so prevalent and it, it, I feel like you can pick an Aronofsky movie out, no problem. It's, it's especially because we've talked about them so much. It, it feels mm-hmm. it feels like he's one of these directors that just gets to put out his movie all the time and I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, actually, and wa- watching this again really reminds me why I was so um, struck by his work when I was in school is because all of it is through the formalism. Uh, you can... Um, you don't need amazing shots and amazingly detailed shots, uh, shot schedules to get everything um, to tell a story that way. So that's really appealing to uh, a student on a budget um, when you're working with actual film. If you can just cut things together to tell your story and make it disorienting, then it's much cheaper to do that that way. You don't need as much planning. And so when limited on time and budget, this is the way to go. What you don't understand until you do it is it is incredibly difficult. It is, it's still as difficult as uh, planning all of that stuff. You're just doing it at different stages of production. Um, and that's what, yeah, now I have a, a, a reverence for this movie because nobody can just make this. Nobody can just cut this up and add these montages. Like, I, I complain about them being lazy, like, in, in Macbeth. Like, I don't like them there. Right. Because that's a lazy technique that they're just like, I don't know how to, I don't know how to do this here. But when it's this and it all works, uh, it's it's transcendent. No, I agree. You had criticized The Power of the Dog. Uh, you and I quote said, any best boy can throw this together. <laughs> like, cause that, that's the way it's edited. Uh, I agree with you. Like you can't just, no one can just come to the, like the cutting room floor and, and put this movie together. It's done mm-hmm. in a, like you said, I think it is. It's, it's really, it's really done in a unique way that not a lot of movies do. And the way it's edited p- pushes the story forward in a way that a lot of movies don't utilize editing in that way. Mm-hmm. All right. So I think we're getting ready to wrap this up. Uh, McKenna, what's your final thoughts? And on a scale of one to 10 montages, where do you put this? My final thoughts are my opinion of this movie hasn't changed much. I still don't like it. I probably won't watch it again. If I do, my opinion might change (laughs) because I was in a really bad mood when I watched this the first time and maybe I'll be in a better mood next time. Um, Maybe I'll just watch Disaster Artist again. Um, (laughs) I guess uh, two and a half. Wow. No, no. Wait. Uh, (laughs) 2.8. It's not going to change anything. (laughs) 2.8. That's montages. Right. Yeah, I I did not care for it. And like like we said, this isn't a movie you go out to. I don't think this is a movie you go out to enjoy. And I certainly didn't enjoy it. And I probably won't watch it again. Right on. Well, you rated it higher than Ready Player One. So that's saying something. (laughs) Oh, good. That movie is terrible. I I stand by that. Ready Player One, I think, is worse than this movie. (laughs) There are zero montages in Ready Player One. (laughs) Katya, what did you think of this one? 
Um, I liked, I was drawn in. I liked the, watching the movie. Um, it seems like something I would watch. If I watched it again, it's something you revisit once a year, once every two years. Right. I still think everyone should see it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Even if they hate themselves and everything afterwards. You're not going to yeah. change my mind. You're not changing it. <laughs> right. I mean, that's just my opinion. I give it like a like an eight. Okay. Eight that montages. High. I liked the montages. Wow. I enjoyed the movie. And yeah, I thought it was interesting. So every Valentine's Day, you're going to watch this? Maybe the day after Valentine's okay. Day. <laughs> yeah, it depends on yeah if we're still together. <laughs> yeah. That's a terrible Valentine's Day tradition. <laughs> what do you think? No, of this like one? I'd watch it if we weren't together. Oh right. Okay, okay. <laughs> what do you think of this one, Colin? I, I think it is uh, a seminal work. Um, it's. I think I didn't write this question down, but uh, a lot of people describe this as an art house movie. Um, and I see that, like, I think, I think that the techniques here are so, are, um, so heady that this could be labeled as an art house, but it still, um, tells these stories in such an organic way that I, I don't think that it's just an art house film that's meant to alienate. It's alienating with a purpose, um, of story of narrative, which is really, really fascinating. Um, this inspired, this affected me so much as an artist that it has to it has to be like a 9.3 i think it's i think it's amazing um and it's everything that i love about aronofsky does that does that put it higher than mother for you uh i don't remember i've lost that score on my spreadsheet so off the cuff do you think that this is better than mother i enjoy mother more i think that um that um from a formalistic standpoint, that uh, Requiem for a Dream is a better movie. Okay. The other movie I was thinking about while I was watching Requiem for a Dream was Under the Skin. Not that they're trying to say the same thing, just that they were sort of similar in tone from what I was seeing. And they were using the camera mm-hmm. and its specific mechanics to tell the story. Right. So when I wasn't thinking about watching Disaster Artist, I was thinking about <laughs> maybe rewatching Under the Skin, which I haven't wanted to do since we watched Under the Skin. <laughs> But yeah, this movie say, made yeah. me want to yeah. watch that because I was like, I think Under the Skin captured the tone better than Requiem for a Dream. I do love, uh, I mean, like Jaden was saying, like, uh, the more we watched movies, he was like, I'm starting to like these slow movies, Calvin. Right, yeah. And I don't know how much longer I want to do this podcast. Requiem for a Dream <laughs> was a little too slow for me, but yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I really like what you said, Calvin, is like kind of a level of reverence for this movie. I think from a technical standpoint it's fantastic it, mm-hmm. it and then narratively it accomplished everything it was setting out to do and i can always appreciate like i've said before when a director can just tell the story they want to tell without you know studio meddling or you know budget affecting it or, or anything like that so i can always appreciate a movie for that and i also really like just the idea of looking at this as uh, from the standpoint of a documentary like just experiencing someone else's life and there isn't really a point except to just gain empathy or an understanding of of a of a lifestyle that is different than your own. So I really appreciate this movie for that. And uh, yeah, I, the first time I watched it a couple years ago, I didn't like it very much. And I was very uncomfortable by it. And that was before I kind of understood who Aronofsky was and his style of filmmaking. I appreciate it a lot more now. And I would put this at an eight. I just think technically it's really great. And then even though we're not drawn in deep into these characters, their stories are put out in such a way that makes it, uh, I don't want to say enjoyable to watch, but understandable. And it feels authentic to me. And so I can always appreciate a movie for that. We didn't talk about it, but do you guys think that the acting is good in this movie? Do you guys think everyone's doing a good job? 
Yeah. I think I, it's all fine. The 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 mom Sarah is probably like the one who steals the show, right? Uh, yeah, Ellen Burstyn absolutely. I think is absolutely the best uh, actress. Okay, the oh. best character in this. I wasn't sure if you guys thought like Jared Leto's fantastic or anything like that. You know, we didn't even mention the fact that Jennifer Connelly reprises a role in Noah. Yeah, she is yeah. a yeah. she's a uh, Aronofsky alumni. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which we mentioned that I think when we talked about the Fountain is that he likes to use he uses I mean, a lot most, of the same yeah people. most yeah. directors do yeah. yeah but yeah like Ellen Burstyn was in was here. And then in the fountain. Right. Like Christopher Nolan has like the same people in every movie. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, we're going to wrap this one up. Uh, McKinnon, thanks for being on again. Katya, great to have you on. And uh, Calvin, as always, um, you can find our podcast on any platform like Spotify or Apple Music. We also upload all these to YouTube. So please leave a comment. Tell us what we're doing. Yep. Uh, tell us what we're doing well. Tell us what we're doing wrong. And uh, go ahead and uh, leave suggestions for us to uh, do in the future. And with that, thank you for listening to Now This Is Podcasting. <laughs>